question that we are asking and trying to answer as we make our way through these verses. If you remember, if you pay attention to the title, that's the same title as last week because we tried to answer that question last week as well in the first, uh, last little bit of, 30, of chapter 13 and the first little bit of chapter 14. We're still trying to answer that question. In the previous text, we saw that Jesus is more than a mere man. He is God in the flesh. We also saw that Jesus is not a magician or an entertainer. Neither did He come to earth, nor does He wait in heaven to perform for us and amuse us. He is the sovereign Lord. But if we pay attention to the next several verses, we, we see through what Jesus both does and what He says that He is so much more. Matthew is continuing his narrative with Jesus and the disciples as they board a boat and they're going away for some much-needed R&R. The men uh, at the end of 13 at, or at the end of 12 had told Jesus what happened to John. Herod was getting interested in meeting him. Uh, there are more things happening than Matthew tells us about, but Jesus is, is uh, getting some attention that he doesn't want just yet. And so he decides that it's time to leave, withdraw from Galilee, and they get into a boat. Mark tells us in Mark 6.31 that Jesus had told his men, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. These guys were being worked. This following Jesus ministry was a very taxing one on the body. They were tired. They were weary from traveling, from doing ministry. And they needed some time to rest and to recharge. But as they sail off for this little vacation, we read that it doesn't turn out exactly as the disciples might have thought. I think that Jesus knew it was coming, but I don't think the disciples knew or anticipated what we read in verse 13. If you'll look there. Now when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Him on foot from the towns. And when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion on them and healed their sick. So as we read and ask the question, who is Jesus? The first thing that we see is that He is a compassionate healer. Jesus was taking His disciples away from the crowds with the intention to rest to recharge. And I'm sure that the twelve were looking forward to a little vacation time. Uh, But when they arrive on shore, they're met by a crowd of people. And when you're looking to get away from the crowds, a crowd is the last thing you want to see when you get back on shore. I don't think that Jesus was surprised. I I think that He he knew what was waiting for Him on the other side. But we have to remember that that Jesus is a man, uh, just like like, uh, we are, and His body needed time for, for rest. He slept, he ate, he grew tired, he, he uh, needed time to recharge. And, and, and some, somehow the people had figured out that, that Jesus and the disciples were headed to this specific place. So this is the crowd that, that, uh, that is on the one side of the shore, and then they get into the boat and they sail away and they figure out, maybe they, they, they figure out he's going that direction, there's only one or two places he could go, and they get there uh, ahead of time. I think Jesus, if he's if he's trying to help his his guys to relax a little bit, they're not rowing as hard as they can either. So they're taking their time and and uh, just relaxing as they go, even on the journey. 
giving the people some time and, and no doubt kind of gra- uh, growing in numbers as they finally wait for him on the other side. So imagine for a moment what it must have been going through the disciples' minds as the shore uh, comes into view. Phew. A couple of days now to rest and relax. And guess what? There's more waiting than what we left. There's a lot of people and we know what they want. What would you have thought? How would you have felt if someone interfered with your vacation? Someone uh, kept, you know, when we go on vacation, those of us who are disciplined enough will turn off the phones and not check emails and do all of the things that we can to, to, to try to just get some alone time. But, you know, Jesus didn't have any of those things, and yet He was, he was uh, constantly being... Uh, not bothered is not the right word, but he was constantly being uh, approached by people who wanted what he could do for them. And I can imagine the disciples are thinking, you know, someone is messing up our trip. Many someones, in fact. Can't they just leave us alone, even just for a little while? Those of us who have kids know the value of a little alone time, right? Uh, you can't uh, seem to find any time alone. You lock yourself in the bathroom just to not be bothered by someone or uh, a, a car trip or uh, doing something like that. We value those precious alone times. No one is banging on the door. No one's asking for a snack. It's just you and your book and your bowl of ice cream or whatever it is that you take with you on your little vacation. But however upset or inconvenienced the disciples may have felt, We get no such response from Jesus. In fact, there's not even an implied thinking of this this kind from Jesus. Instead, we read that Jesus sees them and has compassion on them. He had pity on them. He felt for them. He he felt for the needs that they had. He he recognized these people are are in need of, of some very big things. Uh, Mark, I think it was, says that he, he saw them as sheep with no shepherd. And his heart goes out to them. He begins to move among them and heal their sick. There's no grumbling here. There's no complaining here. There's no uh, passive-aggressive behavior from Jesus. He is sincerely and legitimately uh, caring and compassionate for these people's needs. He's not rushing through them to get them out of here and hurry up and 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 fix all of their problems. Think about it. Uh, you know, we know that eventually the, the number is given to us five thousand plus people. Jesus could have just spoken the word, and all of those who in the crowd who were sick would have been healed, and they could have been sent on their merry way. But he moves among them, and he and he heals them, and is individually among them, and loves them in this way. The plans have now changed, and. So Jesus decides to spend the day there. Mark tells us that He taught them many things. And Matthew tells us He healed their sick. Now there will be time for rest. There will be time for Jesus to be alone. I, I, I know that he's coming. His, his prayer time is coming and He will be alone. Uh, they did have that time on the boat. Jesus knows these, these things are important. But people are important as well. People who are important to Jesus. And he saw these people, as I said, as sheep without a shepherd. His heart went out to them and he, he took time with them. And he loved them. And he cared for them. His people are not an inconvenience or a disturbance 
to Jesus. Not now, not then. Jesus made time for those who were in need. Why? Because he is a compassionate healer. But then secondly, we see that Jesus is an all-sufficient provider. As the day turned to evening, the disciples recognized that the people were, were going to be hungry. The disciples are recognizing this, that, that, that this is not going to uh, end anytime soon, and dinner time is either approaching or has already passed, and nobody brought anything to eat. Nobody planned to be out there this long. And they see this problem and only one possible solution. Look at verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So Jesus knows another option, obviously. I'm not telling you, I don't think anything that you don't already know is coming. But when we read the four different accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about this particular story, we we get little details that one includes that the other doesn't, and we piece together just a magnificent story uh, and a magnificent miracle. John 6 and verse 5, Jesus asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is testing his disciples, uh, maybe testing their faith, testing their their ability to trust uh, in the Lord uh, for for their provisions. Mark writes that they sarcastically asked Jesus, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? We couldn't have that. A denarii uh, was about a, a day's wages. So they're, they're estimating that it's going to take uh, more than six months worth of pay to buy enough bread to feed these people. Of course, they don't have this kind of money. And, 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 I, and I sense this tone of sarcasm in their words there. What, are we supposed to go and buy bread? 206 months worth of pay to be able to, to buy enough food for these people? The only option that they could see then is for Jesus to send them away to fend for themselves and find their own dinner. But Jesus says in verse 16 there, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. I like that. You give them. Does Jesus think that these guys have, have food with them? No. But He's putting them in a situation that requires them to acknowledge that they don't have anything to give. Verse 17, they said to Him, we, only, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to Me. So they say, hey, send them, you need to send them away now, Jesus. You've healed them all. It's food time. Uh, you don't have, we don't have anything for them. You need to send them away. And Jesus says, no, nobody needs to go away. You guys can take care of them. You guys feed them. The disciples, I imagine, are a little confused and frustrated at this. But they go, I imagine they wander through the crowd looking to see who brought anything. Did, did anybody happen to bring any food? And as the story goes, they find the little boy who has a little sack lunch, five loaves, Two fish, and they bring them back to Jesus. The, the, the first miracle was separating food from a young boy. I know my boys wouldn't have given their five loaves and two fish. Uh, I wouldn't have either to the disciples and say, no, you find your own. I brought this. So that was the first miracle that happened that day. And then they bring them to Jesus and they say, uh, well, this is all we've got. I mean, and maybe this is their, their second attempt at showing Jesus. We really don't need to be here much longer. This is all that there is. We need to send them away. And Jesus says, uh, no, 
bring them here to me. When we're talking about a loaf too, don't, don't think the giant loaf of bread that you're going to get at, at Aldi's or at Wegmans, but rather it's, it's more like a biscuit. It's a, it's a personalized loaf of bread. And so five loaves and, and two little fish. We're not talking about, you know, giant uh, salmon that the kid was packing in a cooler, but uh, rather just, uh, just enough for, for maybe a, a meal and a little bit, a snack or something enough for one person. Certainly not for 5,000 people. Of course, we know the story. Jesus isn't phased by these words, by the reality. He knows exactly what He's going to do. He says, bring them here to Me. Motioning for the men to bring the little that they did have to Jesus. In verse 19, then He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. When he says to, to have the men sit down, this, this carries with it a meaning of, of, of sitting down to a meal. It's, it's more than just have everybody sit down so that they can all see, but it's, it was the same word that was used over through the New Testament to describe sitting down or reclining at table, sitting down for the meal that he is about to provide. And, and I'm sure the disciples are wondering, how are we going to do this? Five loaves divided by 5,000. Uh, nobody's, I mean, this is smaller than a communion cracker we're talking about. They'd have, they, they, they're going to get from this. He blesses the food. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is one of my my favorite miracles to read about. It's one that I hope to have explained to me one day uh, by Jesus Himself. Because none of the Gospel writers really go into detail about how Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, only that He did it. Uh, and, 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 and it was just an amazing thing to think about how, how, I mean, even if He had given one to each of them, there wouldn't have been enough. One of those little loaves, did he put it into a basket and then begin to pull it all out? Where did the basket come from? Where, where did he, uh, did he, did he just, uh, break it? Was it, was it a bunch right there and they had to keep coming back? I would love to see this one, uh, explained and maybe even see it. Hopefully someone had a, a video camera there and, and we can see what happened on that day. But I want you to notice two things about this this story as we as we read through this kind of quickly and really don't spend a whole lot of time with it uh, is that first that Jesus provided what the people needed that what they needed was food they needed bread and Jesus gave it to them which means that they all ate all five thousand plus people ate now and it says there besides women and children and some would estimate this uh, to uh, as upwards as twenty thousand people there if every guy had a wife and and every guy had a, a kid and and then we're talking you know that there were there would have been you know that that number could you know, fluctuate uh, very much so. 5,000 is nothing to sneeze at either. So if it was only 5,000, it's still a pretty big deal. But uh, it was definitely more than that. And, and Jesus, uh, or the Bible tells us here that they all ate until they were full. One boy's lunch might have filled him up, but it was multiplied to fill 5,000 people's bellies. And as if that wasn't enough, they begin to collect the broken pieces, the, the fragments, and they come up with 12 baskets full of leftovers. Think about that for a moment. They ended up with more than they started with. That's never happened 
at any of our potlucks. We have lots of leftovers, but it's always less than what we started with. But Jesus, when Jesus holds the potluck, they come away with more than they started with. It's an incredible, it's an amazing miracle. But also I want you to notice how Jesus met the people's needs. And, and this is maybe my favorite aspect of this, of this miracle is that he did it through the disciples. He is the one who took the bread and the fish. He is the one who blessed it. He is the one who broke it. But they are the ones who gave it to the people. He gave it to the disciples to distribute among the people. Jesus was allowing them to participate in one of the greatest miracles of the Bible. And what we see here is a very beautiful picture of discipleship. That, that little statement that Jesus made to them, you give them something to eat, and then his act of giving them the food to, uh, to, to, dis- uh, to distribute, uh, shows us, describes for us what it's like to be a disciple of Christ and how it's played out in everyday life. The disciples didn't have enough to help the people. In fact, what they did have wasn't even theirs, it was the boys. But Jesus made much of the little that they had and allowed them to participate in meeting the needs of all those people. And no one there thought that the disciples had done this miracle. I think that one of the advantages of having all of the people sit down was that they could all see Jesus standing up. And imagine the look on the disciples' faces as they kept coming back. And 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 where where did you guys get this food? Jesus keeps making it. We don't know what's going on back there, but he keeps bringing it. So let us know if you want more. Uh, and and this is just just an incredible uh, opportunity for them to participate in such a great miracle. They were privileged to deliver the much needed provision to the people that day. They got to witness the miracle taking place and actively participate in it. And it's the same way with us. There are people all around us who are in need. We can recognize their need. We look at their lives and we see brokenness. We see hurt and suffering and pain. And we know that they need some help. But if we're honest, we really don't have anything worthwhile to give them. But our needs are not impossible for Jesus. Our lack doesn't hinder His ability. And as we deliver the bread of Christ to those who are in need, we engage in ministry to other people and we find that Jesus is everything we need and they need. He is the all-sufficient provider. Then in verse 22, we see another answer to the question, who is Jesus? He is a merciful Savior. Immediately after feeding the people, Jesus orders the disciples back into the boat and, and, and to cross to the other side. And Matthew doesn't really tell us why uh, this is a, such an immediate end to their dinner party here, but John does. In John 6.14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, referring to the, to the, the five loaves and two fish multiplied, they said, this is indeed the prophet who, has come, who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Matthew tells us in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus knew that the people misunderstood the the teaching and the miracle. In fact, if you read John, 
uh, John's account of this, John 6, this, this same group of people will follow him to the other side. And they will then um, really get some uh, disturbing uh, teaching from Jesus. And, and at that point, many of them will fall away. But Jesus knew that they didn't really understand this, uh, this miracle and the teaching. They were greatly impressed by the miracle. And they were announcing among themselves, this is the guy, this is the one, this is the prophet who's to come into the world. Hey, let's take him to Jerusalem and let's make him the king. And of course, this is not God's plan. This is not how God was going to do that. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew the Father had different plans. So He sends the crowds away immediately along with the disciples and He goes alone to pray. And for several hours, Jesus is alone on the mountain spending time with His Father. And again, I like to wonder about what that must have been like. To be able to have been present when the Father and the Son commune with each other in prayer. When they spend hours together. Not just minutes. Not just short little snippets. But hours of communion. How intimate that must have been. How special and, 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 and awesome that must have been to hear Jesus pray. Meanwhile, on the boat... The disciples are not having a sweet hour of prayer. They are caught in a storm at sea. In the evening, a storm arose and was hammering the ship. If you look at verse 23, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now remember that these men are very comfortable on the open water. Many of them were fishermen uh, by trade and, and had spent most of their lives out at sea. They had no doubt experienced many storms in their lifetime. And Matthew doesn't say that they were afraid of the storm. We've already seen them caught in a storm and fearing for their lives, and they woke Jesus up in the ship earlier in Matthew. This time, Matthew doesn't say they were afraid of the storm. They were afraid by what they saw coming towards them on the water in the storm. At the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., so the, uh, the men uh, who are already spent from a long day of ministry have now been toiling for quite some time in a storm out at sea. They're exhausted. They're mentally drained. They're physically drained. And now, they see what they think can only be a ghost walking out across the water towards them. Nobody's ever done this before. So it's not like their first reaction is, oh, Jesus is catching up. That's how He decided to do it. They're thinking, this is a ghost. This is, this is bad, guys. We're in trouble here. And they're terrified. And Mark tells us that Jesus meant to pass by the disciples. I take this to mean that Jesus was going to just keep going and let the disciples make it to shore and that's how He would catch up to them. But when they saw Him, they were terrified. And when they saw Him, He had to calm them. But Jesus responds with simple and powerful words. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. This is what's called a a bilateral statement. Bilateral meaning that the state, the second statement, it is I, is the reason for the first and the third statement, the first and the last statement. In other words, the first part, take heart, and the last part, do not be afraid, 
are based on the middle part. It is I. The reason that the disciples can take heart and the reason that they don't need to be afraid is because it's Jesus who's walking towards them. He's here. And now is the time for courage and faith, not fear. So, as you're familiar with the story, Peter decides that if it's really Jesus, then he's going to prove it. And he says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to to come to you on the water. In other words, if it's really you, then tell me or command me to come out there and meet you on the water. I want to walk on the water to you, if that's really you. Now, some people read this, understand this as more of a since it is you, instead of a, a doubtful if it is you. But Peter is saying here, I want to participate in this with you. If you're out there on the water, Jesus, I want to be out there on the water with you. So let me come out there with you. Peter was going to attempt to do the impossible at the word of his master, just as he had done with feeding 5,000 people earlier that day. What does Jesus say to him? Simply, come. So Peter, uh, the next verse there, so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Very simply, just kind of says it. It doesn't really describe that, but once again, there's so much going on. Remember, we're in a storm. It wasn't like they were uh, ice skating out there smoothly and gracefully. They're climbing up waves and climbing down them again. And, and, and this is, this is uh, still windy and noisy and loud. And, and I imagine the lightning and the thunder and the, and the wind and the waves and the howling and the terrified disciples still screaming. And Peter is walking on the water in the midst of all of this. Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And we like to beat up on Peter for this. Oftentimes we, we, we focus on this. In fact, I, I was saying in prayer meeting uh, that uh, I think it's Mark that doesn't include Peter's part of walking on the water because uh, there's, some, there's some history that says that Peter uh, was uh, kind of the source for Mark as he wrote his gospel. And, and I imagine Peter was like, let's just leave that part out. Let's, let's uh, talk about Jesus, but don't talk about me sinking there. But this is, this is what we do. We, we, we beat up on Peter for, for fearing for fearing and for doubting. But, but let's not forget that for a moment, Peter was actually out there on the water. Peter was actually doing the impossible. And for just a small moment, Peter forgot about the wind and the waves, and he found the courage to do the impossible. But then he saw the storm around him, the dark clouds, the lightning. He heard the howling wind and the crashing waves. He saw them rising high into the air and slamming into the ship. And he forgot he was walking on water. He became afraid. Fear creeps into his heart about something that he had already overcome through the power of Christ. He was walking on water, but he was afraid of the wind and the waves that he was walking on. And that's when he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of Him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Peter's little faith was enough to walk on water. But his doubt caused him to sink. Jesus' rhetorical question here was asking Peter, Peter, look what you were doing. You only had a little faith. Yet you were doing this. You were walking on water, Peter. Why doubt? 
You were already doing it. Why the second thoughts? And that's the trouble with doubt. Sometimes it comes to us after we've already succeeded. Even with a little faith, you can start. But doubt comes and wonders if you can actually do what you're doing. If you can continue. Peter had his second thoughts out on the water. Maybe, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't be out here right now. This is kind of scary. People shouldn't be out in storms walking on water. It's just not a good idea. But see, Jesus had told him to come. When he said, if it's you, command me to come, he was saying, order me. Give me an order. If this is you, then order me to come out to the, to the water with you. And Jesus said, come. He ordered him to come. And so Peter getting out of the water was an obedience to Christ's call. And it's while Peter was obeying Christ that the doubt said, I don't think you can do this. And that's when he sank. And Jesus is walking on the water and His words to the disciples, even His question to Peter at the end, all tell us that our fear is unnecessary when we're in God's will. Doubt is unnecessary when you're obeying Christ. It doesn't say that it's impossible to doubt. It's just unnecessary to doubt. Because it's against our instincts to not doubt or not fear. But when we're doing what Jesus said, there's no need. Charles Cranfield wrote, If it is a result of obedience to Christ's command that the church or the individual Christian is in a situation of danger or distress, then there's no need to fear. And though fear and doubt are not necessary, they are a real part of our lives. And when we fail because of fear and doubt, we find Jesus there. He's able and He's willing to pull us from the water, set us on our feet, and give us the grace to start again. Why? Because He is a merciful Savior. After Peter and Jesus again walked back on the water to the boat, verse 32 tells us that the wind ceased. And the disciples have already witnessed Jesus' power over the wind and the waves before, but it's kind of like they've forgotten. In fact, Mark tells us that they seem to have forgotten about what had happened earlier with the feeding of the 5,000. It says then, uh, Mark 6.52 says, They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. But eventually, the disciples, though tired and bewildered and exhausted, They've witnessed all of these things and to what depth I do not know, but they utter these words, truly, you are the Son of God. Now it's certain that their understanding of this confession would deepen over time. And as they continued with Christ, their knowledge of Him and their commitment to Him would grow and mature. But Matthew is is directing his readers to this answer. He's getting us to this all along. This is what Matthew wants us to to understand as we ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a compassionate healer. He's not only a merciful Savior. He is the very Son of God. He is the Lord of all creation. In, in former times, Job recognized that Yahweh is the one who tramples on the waves of the sea in Job 9.8. The psalmist in Psalm 77.19 wrote that uh, of Yahweh, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. And now the disciples see Jesus doing the same things that is attributed to God 
in the Old Testament. And Matthew is writing to his readers and reminding us that he is, that Jesus is divine. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah King. All creation is under his rule. He is an all powerful and almighty God. Yet, we also read and see again in the final verses that he is caring and compassionate. We started with a compassionate healer. We end with a compassionate healer in verse 34. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might not only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Not only is Jesus the sovereign Lord of the universe, he is the Son of God Almighty. And he is one who cares for people like you and me. To us, our needs and problems are big things. They're great. They're huge. Impossible for us to fix. But they're no big deal for God. No food in a desolate place? It's no problem for God. Have a sickness or disease that doctors can heal? He can. Nothing is too big for God. That's why in Jeremiah 32, God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Of course, the answer is no. But maybe you're listening right now and thinking, okay, well, that's great, but how does that help me? Here's the application in two minutes. By realizing who Jesus is through stories like these, I can be confident of three things. Number one, Jesus can. Jesus can do anything. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too much or too big for God. But number two, Jesus cares. Jesus can and Jesus cares. He knows what's going on in my life and in yours. He knows our pain. He knows our suffering. And He understands what we're going through. He cares for us. He's not just the God in heaven who actually knows all of these things, but lets us deal with them in our own way. He actually cares about the little things that are going on in our lives that are huge to us. He cares. You may have figured it out already, but there are some things that God doesn't fix. There are some problems and pains in life that God doesn't take away. It's not because He can't, but because He has a bigger purpose for them than what we can see. But even when God chooses not to fix our problems, He provides the grace to sustain us. So how does this help me today? What do these verses do for me when I'm waiting to hear for a doctor's report? Or when there are more bills than money to pay them? Or when when shattered relationships in my life aren't getting glued back together? Know this. That no situation is beyond God's power. No person is too far that He cannot reach them. No condition is too far advanced that Jesus can't step in and do something about it. Know that Jesus can and Jesus cares. But then the last, the third thing, know that Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of God. That means that He doesn't exist to fix my problems. He doesn't exist to ease your pain or mine or improve our situation here on earth. 
By recognizing that Jesus is Lord, I realize that I exist for His glory and for His purposes. And He may choose to take away the pain in my life or lift some of the heavy burden, but if He doesn't, He is the Master. He is Lord. He is God. But what's amazing about this, this story is that though I, I get the, the real sense that He is Lord of all, I also get with such impact, He is a compassionate God. He cares for me. He provides the things that I need. And He mercifully saves. And of course, the greatest display of His compassion is His death on the cross. Great love and kindness, He took our place, bearing our sin and our shame, suffering God's wrath for us. And in our greatest need, He provides everything that's needed for salvation and reconciliation with God. He will save any and all who come to Him by faith. None of us can do this by ourselves, but He can. And He does, because He cares. So by realizing who Jesus is through these miracle stories, we can be confident that the God we worship, the God to whom we pray, to whom we look for help, is both caring and capable. He is the compassionate healer, the all-sufficient provider, merciful Savior. He is the Son of God.